Okay, so today I'm really happy to welcome on the show Andrew Chacha, who is a co-founder at Interlock and also kind of chief marketing officer there as well. Welcome, Andrew. Interlock is an outlier portfolio company. They describe themselves as building blockchain-based security products for individuals and enterprise. And actually, what's really cool about you guys is you're kind of creating this collaborative network framework for those two to, to build a more secure web. So we're going to get into that a little bit later. I think also doing some really cool things with incentivizing that kind of consumer's participation in that and lots of stuff with AI as well. You've been doing some really interesting tweets recently. And that's why I was like, let's get you on the show. I think kind of picking up a lot of momentum now. Whilst your solution isn't exclusively for Web3, I think Web3 just has so many of its own problems, security vulnerabilities. Something like this is just intuitive to most people in in, in Web3 and, and actually a great test environment to kind of scale out of. So before we go into that, let's learn a little bit about you, Andrew. I know you've got an interesting background, have a history of coming in at a particular stage with startups, you know, joining that founding team uh, and then really kind of helping them go to market. But yeah, Tell us more about you and, and how you arrived at Interlock. Yeah, so my, my path to Interlock is pretty interesting because before Interlock, I really was involved in Web3. In my background, I was the first marketing hire at about five Silicon Valley-based software companies. I hate saying that, but that's that's what they were, mostly in the enterprise space. And I learned how to productize what I did at those companies because when you're the first marketing hire at a Series A or C stage company, typically you're tasked with a bunch of different things with conflicting goals like messaging, positioning tech tools, campaignings, building pipelines. And I learned how to productize that. And I started my own marketing agency in 2018 to help companies in that exact spot. And I've helped most most companies in Series A and earlier, but I have helped some household names like Dropbox and the like. My very first consulting client ever was the predecessor to Interlock, which I met my co-founder, Rick at. So he was building enterprise defense platform. He sold enterprise defense products to some very large household names like Uber, Monsanto, Coinbase, and Gemini internally. And then he figured out this model of how we can get everyday internet users involved in the security conversation for for better security. So here I am. Yeah, and it's a great team. I remember when they were kind of coming through the investment process, just a really credible team, also like nice guys to work with as well. And it's been great kind of watching your traction. So maybe we'll kind of get into the approach. I mean, I think most people will understand the problem, at least in a kind of consumer context. You might want to maybe expand on that. In an enterprise sense, I know you're in business at the moment with a kind of client partner, but I think, you know, most people have a, have a general sense of the kind of scale of the, the problem. Let, let's go into Web3 because you've done some interesting things specific to threat security threats in Web3. So maybe we just focus there a bit and then we'll go into kind of the innovative approach that you guys are taking. Kind of to frame the discussion, it's as everyone knows, especially in DeFi and Web3, phishing and social engineering. So getting people to click on links or send you investments are the predominant threat vectors for financial harm or data theft. And especially in Web3, where most of these assets are we have self-custody over, it's even more dangerous than, than Web2. And to kind of quantify what these numbers look like, according to a chain analysis report from, I believe, at the end of 2021, because that's when I was doing my research, there was almost $8 billion that year that was stolen from end users. That's not including like large protocol hacks or stuff that mostly get returned. These are like end users getting fished, their wallet drainers, or signing you know, malicious smart contracts. So Web3 and the nature of it is really ready for better security products to help them keep them safe online. And as it relates to what we're doing, 
part of our thesis is that the browser, your desktop browser, obviously mobile's a, a big player, but your desktop browser is the new OS. You're running your for both consumers and enterprises. You're running all of your applications, your word processing, everything out of Chrome, Brave, Edge, and Firefox. And we want to shield that and proactively protect users before they click a bad link, before they enter their credentials, or before they sign a smart contract. Yeah, and I mean, I think, of course, whilst you know, Web3 is still relatively small in, in the context of the, the wider web, like I'm sure we both probably subscribe as to the audience, that it, it is the direction of travel. And so whilst the problems are relatively small now, you know, you can see the extent of it already in the numbers that you mentioned. Clearly, it's just only going to become a bigger and bigger problem. And in a way, some people have almost resigned themselves to say, well, it's kind of the cost of sovereignty, right? If I'm in control of everything, then, you know, it's my problem to make sure that my personal problem to make sure that's secure. Because we're talking about digital assets, the kind of reward for somebody that can kind of effectively play that system uh, as an attack, it pays off as well, right? So I'm actually just reading something on the Lazarus heist at the moment, right? And everything that went on with North, North Korea. So, it, you know, it clearly it's scary. Right? You've also kind of, you talk about this collaborative approach between consumers and enterprise. Could you talk about that a little bit, how you approach that? Our approach to security is getting everyday internet users involved in the security process. And we're getting those users to install our free security extension Threats Layer, which gives you proactive protection against dangerous websites. We scan every URL that you visit. And if it's dangerous, we sandbox the browser and we pre prevent you from entering credentials or downloading bad files. And our true unique selling proposition and how we plan to transform security is we are incentivizing users in two fashions, to get them interested in security and to share essential threat data. So users can get that free protection and they can elect to share anonymized security data for the purpose of threat intelligence. And if they do so, they're rewarded with iLock token. And the second mechanism is our AI-based products are not perfect. No product will ever be perfect. And we're incentivizing users to correct our AI when it gets something wrong. So that the more users we have on the platform, the more pages they are locking, unlocking, and helping to train. The better the data set gets, the better the AI gets, and the better the entire network gets. So connecting consumers to enterprises, so we have a robust network of everyday internet users with ThreatSlayer. We're at about the 40,000 mark now, still in beta, like pre-launch, so there's some high demand for this. So we're building out that network of ThreatSlayer users, and then once we hit critical mass starting probably about next year, that's when we turn the switch on the enterprise side, which we've already started building the scaffolding the messaging, positioning, all that in the background. So we have a suite of cyber security products, including that threat intelligence, which we'll sell to data brokers and ironically to other security companies, because a lot of security companies are ingesting threat intelligence, ingesting the type of data that we create. And a lot of that data is typically sourced through crawlers and bots. We're pretty sure we're the first crowdsourced threat intelligence platform. So we'll be selling that threat intelligence data because most large enterprises and security companies you can think of are consuming this. Second, we have an enterprise version of ThreatSlayer, which we call NetKeeper, which is a browser defense platform that we will sell. And then we have our API, which is our AI threat detection, which you can plug into your wallet to have an in-browser experience. Anything that needs link scanning, you can take advantage of our AI threat detection and AI format. That was a long explanation, but ultimately we're incentivizing users to share data 
and then we generate revenue by selling that data and other cybersecurity products to enterprises. And by entities sharing data and consumers, the entire network get safer, the product users get safer. So this is where the collaborative approach, and this is all enabled by Web3 technology. And so why is Web3 and and blockchain so critical to this? Why was that the kind of missing ingredient in a way, right? Because obviously Rick and and everybody have been working in security for some time, presumably trying to solve this or, you know, related security issues. What was the kind of aha moment that all of a sudden, you know, Web3 technology and infrastructure would, would just allow this to be done in a much more effective way. First, it's incentivizing users in a fast, efficient, and low gas fee manner to get involved in security for easy facilitation of payments throughout the world. Secondly, it allows us to share data in an effective manner as well. We're using Web3 to solve legacy Web2 problems. So like ultimately, like our target market is not limited to DeFi and Web3. This is a starting point, but it's also the ethos of Web3 technologically savvy, probably already using similar products, they understand browse to earns and tokenization. So this is like our launch point to get that groundswell, build that initial network, and then really springboard this company, our products and and helping make the internet a safer place. Yeah. And I think that's what's cool as a a kind of go to market, as I said, at the top end, when you're a startup and maybe this kind of comes into your role and roles in in startups at the stage, you have total addressable market, which is usually some ridiculously big number. And, you know, you you try to have all these little circles and you, you try to get to one, which is, well, what is... What is the market where we're going to get the least friction? You know, it's it's most obvious, you know, why our product or value proposition works. And then you can kind of build out from there. And as I said, you know, clearly because of the technology that you're using, the incentive mechanisms naturally lends itself well to a domain where security, poor security has a, has a high price. But it'd be good to kind of go into a little bit more of your background. As you said, I think there's something like 20 startups now, some large, some small. We have a lot of founders, obviously, that listen to the show. And it'd be great to kind of just pick your brains on the frameworks that you use when you join some founders, you know, you find them presumably in in a certain state. What are the kind of first things you do when you get through the door? And how might founders be able to kind of, you know, use those frameworks themselves today in their startup? Cool. So this is my bread and butter. And this is what I love talking about even a little more than security, to be honest. (laughs) Much as I love security and helping to enable a safer internet. But my first thing that I focus on when I'm onboarding a new customer or onboarding Interlock, my own company, I'm ensuring I have proper fundamentals in place to achieve a successful go-to-market and marketing strategy. My perspective and and experience, it doesn't matter like the level of founder, if they've had successful exits or IPOs, most founders confuse strategy and tactics and they get involved in marketing tactics too early. They want to know, especially in Web3, we need to set up a, a, a Zealy campaign. We need incentivized content. We need all this blockchain-enabled marketing technology. We need segment. We need amplitude. First, you need to take a step back and ensure that you have strategic messaging in place, which relies on strong market research, user interviews, and the like. This stuff sounds like really basic, but you'd be surprised. A lot of companies are lacking this. But I'd say first and foremost, it's getting that strategic messaging and positioning in place through audience research. And then also ensuring that you have the right goals aligned at your organization. Because when you're in early stage companies, your goals are like, if you're a founder listening, you're probably doing all these concurrent things. You're raising funds. You're building products, you're trying to sell products, and you're using marketing to achieve that goal. So what is my goal at that time? And then building out 
that strategic framework appropriately to achieve that goal. So typically, like, you know, just using Interlock as a case study, you can see my, my T-shirt is Threat Slayer. This is done with intentionality. I know my audience. It's, it's DeFi. It's under 45, 92% plus male. They're irreverent. They're anti-government. They're into privacy and anonymity, and they like to have fun. Doing these fundamentals up front can help you create better messaging, positioning products and campaigns moving forward. Sounds really basic, but most, most don't have it. And then also when it comes to the audience, it's not just... It's not just your end user who's your audience. Outlier Ventures, you're part of my audience. Investors are part of my audience. Existing in potential. Security analysts are part of my audience. Community members, extension users, getting all those things mapped out with messaging for each can really go a long way in helping you achieve those goals and also scale out your organization. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm a big fan of the branding and communication that you're doing. You know, I think... And kind of how the product looks, the product experience. You know, these are things often that are quite lacking in, in, in a Web three context, and especially if you have quite quite technical founders, right? It's just not their wheelhouse, or as you say, they're, they're kind of maybe just a bit overwhelmed with, with trying to do everything at the same time. So clearly, having somebody like yourselves in the founding team, ideally a co-founder, but if not, like you know, one one of the kind of early hires, it clearly makes a difference. Has somebody that's kind of just coming into Web3, you know, what what do you think is different as to how you approach things? The fundamentals don't change. The biggest variable that I experienced, because I was new to Web3, and originally when Rick called me to join in early 2021, I told him, no, I'm like, I'm doing too well consulting. He called me six months later. I had a friend who's an investor in blockchain and, and Web3. He's like, this could be an asymmetric return. The market's right. This is a cool product. I believe there's two big variables, like moving from Web2 to Web3. Number one, it's tokens and market. Obviously, this relates to Web 2, but especially when you're marketing to consumers, market sentiment is, depends on how are, how's Ethereum doing, how's, <laughs> how's Bitcoin doing, how's the market doing. The more liquidity there is in the market, the better the sentiment, the easier it is to market. Number two, it's the aspect of community building. Some web company, Web 2 companies, especially enterprise, you'll build communities around developers or maybe marketing professionals, but not at this scale that is happening in web three. That was probably my biggest learning curve is like the community. Like I approached that, like I had my messaging, my frameworks, got some community consulting on how to build an effective community from top to bottom. How do I handle, you know, the funnel of community? Cause that's, that's its own strategy in itself. But the community building to me was like the most foreign thing when I joined, because I'm like, I go from you know, meeting with CEOs of companies that raised 80 million in the biotech sphere, running their marketing to like, there's a guy with an alien messaging me about presale too. I'm like, what, what world am I in right now? That was probably the biggest learning curve that I had. Best piece of advice I ever got for UCR community. They're active, they're loyal. And mostly we've been kind of grassroots marketing. I spent almost $0 on paid so far. Biggest piece of advice I got was from the co-founder at LF0, Anthony Zolciak, about a year and a half ago. And he's like, Andrew, just talk to them. To bring it back to your original question, it is the market, and there's a lot of externalities we can't control. As you know, because we started launching this like right at the height of the bull and everything came crashing down. So that's been a variable as it relates to our token launch too, but then building community and, and connecting. But the community part to me has been the most rewarding about this because like Web3 is bringing people from all over the globe together around a common interest and people that want to be seen, felt, and heard and that want to form a connection. I talk to people almost on a daily basis in countries that I you know, normally wouldn't have. 
And to me, that is the coolest thing. Like, you know, part of our community, we have students in, in Finland researching their PhDs. We have mechanical engineers in Turkey. We have CTOs in the United States. We have Gartner analysts. So that community aspect was probably the most foreign along with the you know markets. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, right? It's the unusual thing is that in many ways, Web3 projects kind of go public. You're not operating and executing in private. You're, you're kind of out there in the open. If you don't get community right, it, it can be a real drag. But as you say, like if you if you manage to to find a way to to leverage community and do it, I think in a in a meaningful way, it can be very rewarding, unusually rewarding, because as you say, there is this kind of often goes beyond a product, right? You know, people have a stake in the network, effectively, right? It's in their interest to kind of help grow the network beyond just wanting a, a, a cool product. So that kind of belonging is an ownership in a way is a key part. Yeah, and I'd like to dig into two of those things that you mentioned. First, like building in public. That's a, an element that I forgot to mention that falls in the community. That is a thankless job because it's like we have potential end users on the, on the business side, potential token holders, existing extension users, all asking questions all the time. All of our code is on GitHub except our AI heuristics. We give weekly Tech Tuesday updates of exactly what our team and it's a thankless job. And sometimes like we try to be as transparent as possible, which adds to credibility, but sometimes it's a double-edged sword. I was supposed to launch my website last Friday, but we found a bug at the last second and I'm not launched yet. So now I'm under the gun to get that over out. In the Web2 world, B2B, nobody would even know that I'm launching a website besides internal team. So it wouldn't matter. And also when it comes to connections on the community side, it's just some anecdotal examples. One of our community members, random PFP, adds a ton of value. Had a Zoom call with him. He's a security analyst at Gartner. And I hired him as an advisor. So it's really bringing together people. And that's, to me, that's the most fun and rewarding part of this. Well, Andrew, look, thanks for coming on and, and sharing both your experience personally and the great stuff that is going on at Interlock. I mean, in a way, I don't think we really needed to go into too much detail on it. For me, it, it kind of just feels obvious, right? And it's kind of just a question of bringing that crowd. And as you say, you know, you've managed to do that already in beta. Is it 30 or 40,000? Lifetime downloads is like 42,000. The Google Chrome store is weird, but we're approaching 40,000 overall. And that's even before rewards and before our big launches and all mostly grassroots marketing community building. So part of the other thing that I would recommend Web3 founders to, it's build a strong foundation first, your partners and especially your community, get them involved, get them excited get them to know your messaging, know who you are, because that strong foundation can help you set up for success for later. Because what I found in Web3, there's a strong push for a lot of vanity metrics. Like you go talk to an exchange and they're like, oh, they're like, oh, you only had you know 8,000 followers at the time, not enough. I'm like, this is all real. It's organic. There's high value people in here. I encourage you build that strong foundation first and it will pay dividends moving forward before you turn on those high growth campaigns. Because not only for growth and product, but also the ancillary effects, like getting advisors or potential employees or advice. Like we had a, a community member make an intro to the founder of the number of a top, top project. 
just because he wanted to and thought there would be synergies. Very cool. Well, look, lots of really good sound bites here. I'm sure we'll be cutting them up and sharing them across the various channels. Some gold there. When do I get a Threat Slayer t-shirt? That's kind of the question. What's the what, what t-shirt size are you? I'd rather not say on air. We will, I'll tell you okay. off that. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on how slim fit it is. I'm, I'm losing a little bit of weight, but I'm maybe a large. Let's say it's start at large and if we need to go up, well, we can do that. Yeah, I know, I know you have the, uh, the ravenous Instagram following and you want to look good. So if you do get a t-shirt, I'm making a, a mandate that you post it on your Instagram. Of course. Yeah, no problem. We'll do that. We'll do that. Andrew, thanks for coming on. Say hello to the guys uh, and good luck with uh, Network Launch. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. Thank you.